Evening, Islanders and listeners of the world. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And now let me welcome this show's guest author, Roger Fernandez. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so how about we start off today with you giving my listeners a sense of your family, the community you grew up with, um, your place in Puget Sound, a general sense of how you sort of came to your art. Just place yourself in our world a bit. All right. Well, I'm happy to, again, be here, and thank you for the invitation and this opportunity. Uh, my name is Roger Fernandez. I am a member of the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe. The English speakers call us Clallam, but our traditional name is Nuxclayam, which means the strong people. So, um, again, we, we try to kind of balance those two things, what we're called and what we call ourselves. Um, and, uh, I was born and raised in the city of Seattle. I wasn't born on the reservation. My mother moved to Seattle from the reservation as a young woman. And, uh, it was very interesting. I just found out from my aunt, uh, that my mother was a riveter in, uh, the shipyards of Seattle, which made her Rosie the Riveter. And I never knew that until wow. about a month ago. Uh, it kind of blew my picture of what, what I, who I thought my mother was. Um, but still, <laughs> another story. She moved to the city, and I was born. My brothers were born in the city of Seattle. So we've had a, a journey to go back and find uh, the culture of our people, our native people. It was always mm -hmm. important to us to understand our native identity. What that meant uh, was we'd have to go back and learn. And I've had many wonderful teachers around art and storytelling and song and language. Uh, that have helped me understand what I know. So everything I'm sharing with you are things that I uh, went back and learned. Um, I wasn't raised with it like many uh, Native people might be raised with these things in, on the reservation. Uh, but again, teachers were available to help me. And uh, in in my uh, urban life as a Native American person, I went through the public schools um, and I identified myself as an artist a long time ago. And then I went to college uh, studied art, graphic design at the University of Washington. Uh, and I studied art there, and I began to learn through various classes about Native American art and Northwest Coast art in particular. Mm -hmm. And I learned that, and then um, when I got out of college, began more in earnest to learn about the art of the Northwest Coast. And around that time, within a few years, I learned about the art of the, Nor uh, the Northwest Coast people we call the Coast Salish Indian people for the tribes of uh, the Puget Sound region. So, and this CD does have a subtitle of Stories from Puget Salish Tribes. Yes. There is a huge uh, misunderstanding or lack of knowledge about the local tribes of the Puget Sound region. Uh, the stereotype of Northwest Coast culture, which most people become familiar with, is the northern tribes, the totem pole, the button blanket, the mask. And the local tribes here, like my tribe, mm -hmm. the Clallam people, the Lummi people, the Nisqually people, the Snoqualmie people, the Muckleshoot people, all those small tribes that live in the Puget Sound region, that is not a part of their traditional culture, the mm -hmm. totem pole, the mask, the button blanket. And so my own uh, curiosity said, well, what is our art? Right. And I began to study and find our old designs and learn them and now teach them oftentimes. Um, but to learn to do the designs, you have to learn the stories that create the designs. And so I began to learn the stories. And my teachers, when they found out I knew these stories, said, well, if you can tell the stories, then you got to stand up and tell them. Mm -hmm. And they literally push you out into the stage and say, tell the story. 
And so I began to do that as a comfortable, as uncomfortable as it was for me to stand in front of a sta- on a stage in front of an audience. I began to do it, uh, and then at a certain point, you begin to understand in storytelling that it's not about you; it's about the story. Right. The story was here before you. The story will be here after you. Your job is to keep it moving on its journey. And so now in storytelling, I feel I'm fulfilling a responsibility, uh, not just uh, sharing a gift or a talent or, or uh, a cultural knowledge, but fulfilling a responsibility to the story itself. You know, what I love about what you just said there is that we have a lot of stories that a person thinks, well, if I take this old book and I copy it and I preserve this physical object that I've preserved history, history, I've preserved the story, whatever. But there's not oftentimes also life added to that object. You know, a lot of times it's just the object. It's that, that thing you can hold on to. You, the, the oral tradition, as I'm going to want to definitely dive into the, the difference and the importance and the value of oral tradition because we – do not have a great deal of oral tradition that we recognize in this society. Even on a radio show, even though we have oral tradition that is there and we have singers and whatnot, it's not quite the same. And it seems to me that you are embodying history and it is living through you, through oral tradition, whereas an old dusty book that's, you know, 1,500 years old on a bookshelf, it's not necessarily alive until it's picked up and opened and read and talked about and whatnot. Yeah, I was taught by my teachers that um, the power of storytelling is is fully enacted when we have people in the presence of one another, that the power of the story is is at its greatest when we share uh, our breath together, when we conspire Mm. together, we breathe together, our spirits begin to mingle together, and the story is truly enacted then. So when you read a book and read a story out of a book, that is very powerful. It conveys the story, but it lacks that spiritual presence that we being together can only give. When you see a film, again, another powerful way of sharing story, you get the story, but you lack that spiritual element. This is what my teacher taught me a long time ago. This is what carried me as a storyteller. That's why that plays the ideal are a is for different. us to be together. We must be together in the presence of other human beings. Right. Like when you're at a play and you've got the people up there on the stage and you're watching the sweat drip down their chin or whatever. I always have this feeling, and I've been in a few plays, of like, oh, I, I know the shoes you're in. I know what it's like backstage and how hectic it is. And, and there's an empathy. There's this Mm -hmm. feeling of, oh, I want you to do well. I hope you remember your lines. Like, I am really communing in a way with that person on a stage in a way that I never do in a theater. Yeah, the the ability to be with other people is crucial. And I think that's something that we assume technology can simply just step in and take the place of another human being. Mm -hmm. That a computer screen or a television screen or a book can replace another human being. And at certain levels, it does just fine. But it really lacks that, what I'm going to call, social, tribal, spiritual level Mm -hmm. that only being together can give. Uh, And I, I share this often, pretty much with every presentation. I remind people, especially young people, there was a time when there were no computers. And <laughs> young people have a hard time imagining that world. Uh, but I remind them before there was computers, there was storytelling. And then I remind them there was a time a long time ago, there was no television, which I couldn't believe when my mother tried to explain it to me. Um, but then uh, before there was television, there was storytelling. And then I go a long, long, long time ago, there was no writing and no reading and no books. But before there was writing and reading and books, there was storytelling. storytelling. And so 
we humans have, for most of our history, remembered, recorded, shared, taught, learned through storytelling. And it's a powerful gift that many people believe is innate within us. We are hardwired for stories of what some people say. And we've kind of like, um, kind of shunted it off to the side because we have these new things that are very powerful and very fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, But does that make them better? Uh, I feel like just a grumpy old guy when I say, well, just because it's newer doesn't make it better. Um, And so, again, we need to examine. There's a place in the world for grumpy older guys. (laughs) (laughs) We need to... uh, uh, we need to be able to differentiate what makes us human um, versus all the things a computer can do. It, it appears to be very close to us, but it's lacking right. in some very, very powerful ways. Well, one of the things I I, I moved a lot as a child um, for various reasons. And so I never really lived anywhere for more than six months. Uh, I think the, oh gosh, when I was, even when I was like, you know, 18 through 24, when I stayed in one general area for almost six years, I moved about every nine to 15 months or something. So um, as a result, I found that for me, I fell in love with or formed friendships or, or, or really happy relationships in a way with the characters in various books, especially um, books written by the same author because they would carry the characters forward and they became my friends in a way. Because I was saying goodbye to people constantly, and public school is not a great place to make friends instantaneously. So I've always noticed the power that the stories through books or other stories in my life had because they weren't drowned out by how I was influenced by a bunch of my friends or peers, right? And so, for example, I grew up in a century that was really rich in dystopian fiction, Um, You know, and all of these books, you know, 1984 by George Orwell, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, Handmaid's Tale, even Running Man by Stephen King, and of course, Brave New World. Um, A lot of these books fascinated me and really stuck at a young age into my understanding of what can happen in the world. And as a result, as I grew older, I feel like my mind was open to the possibilities and that I was aware of potentiality. So as I grew up and I watched what was going on and checked out the news and paid attention, I would start to see things. And then I'll bring them up to someone who maybe hasn't, you know, really focused on these books. And they'll say, oh, no, no, no. You know, that's just the way things are. Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, well... Maybe that's the way things are, yes, but do you see? And so stories, whether it's these books that to me open my eyes to this genre of what happens in the world or the stories that are in your CD, that they they impact, I think, the malleability and the openness of the minds of the young is what I'm sort of trying to say. And you were talking mm-hmm. about how way, 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 way back there are always stories. Well, those stories are what probably helped young people see more clearly, oh, look, there's the berry bushes, or there's scat, or there's a footprint, or this isn't going to go well if our tribe is arguing with that tribe and we need to talk things through because our stories tell us that if we keep fighting, it'll be bad for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems like stories massively fundamental to how society plays out in each generation. 
Sometimes people think storytelling is just for children. Oftentimes I'm Mm. asked to come to a place and you're going to tell stories to the children, Mm -hmm. which is very important. Children pretty much only understand the world through stories. They don't have the experience or the, 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 just the, the, the capacity yet to be able to understand so much of what's happening in the world. So they, they need stories to help them understand these things. Mm -hmm. But, um, to limit it just to children is sometimes, I believe, a big mistake. My teacher said you tell the same story to everyone. When I mention my teacher, I'm talking about uh, Bruce Miller, his uh, Indian name, Subaye, of the Skokomish people. Uh, right. Very, very powerful storyteller, artist, uh, cultural person, a very good friend, a uh, very funny man, um, wonderful teacher who, who kind of led me through the path of understanding a traditional Native story uh, telling process. And another teacher was uh, uh, Vi Hilbert, uh, mm-hmm. Toxie Blue of the uh, Upper Skagit people, an elder who kept stories and language alive, uh, again, shared all the knowledge she had to help people continue uh, the storytelling process. Mm-hmm. Uh, her son, Ron, was another, Ron Hilbert was another uh, guide. There were So there are many other storytellers, but the wisdoms they gave me, and there's a word right there, wisdom, right. is uh, something that I think uh, humans are hungry for. Uh, now in the day of uh, data and technology and 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 research and statistics, um, those numbers are supposed to give meaning, and they only describe things via a number. They don't give meaning. Storytelling still gives meaning, and mm-hmm. I believe children and everyone is hungry for meaning. Why does the world exist? You know, where did people come from? Where did the sky come from? Where did the the sun come from? Why do people die? Why do people fall in love? All these big stories they need to hear. Uh, stories give meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, again, science can tell about things. I always say that science can tell us how big the sun is. Science can tell us how uh, far the sun is from the earth. Science can tell us how hot the sun is. Science can even tell us when the sun is going to burn out. But science cannot tell us why the sun is. Why is the sun there? What is its meaning? What is its purpose? That is the work of story. That is the work of art. That is work of ceremony and religion. That is the work mm-hmm. of another process that our brain and a computer is just a, 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 a mimic of our brain right. uh, can't give us that. Right. Uh, give us a lot of information, a lot of data and a lot of connections, but it can't give us meaning. Stories give meaning. Art gives meaning. Ceremony gives meaning. And we are hungry for those things today, I believe, more than ever. So people oftentimes hear a native storytellers coming to tell stories and they get all excited. People like to hear those old stories. They like to mm-hmm. be reassured that things have a meaning. Um, even if they come from an incredible story, that doesn't seem to make sense to our brain. Um, well, and, and clearly, I mean, you know, the the Bible, right, is full of stories. And then you've got Hollywood, which is full of stories. And what I find interesting is as a mother raising children and watching Hollywood story. I mean, when I was 17, The Little Mermaid came out and 16, I think I was 16 and Little Mermaid came out. It's a Disney um, movie. And I went three times to see this movie mm-hmm. in the theater. I, it just, it, the music, I just was totally excited by this movie, but I, didn't understand necessarily why I didn't see what it was that they were plucking or how they were trying to, you know, gain my interest and what messaging I was getting so much. I was just enthralled by a very well put together story. But now as a mom watching my kids and all the stuff coming out of Hollywood, you see repeating themes. And what concerns, well, concerns me and probably concerns a lot of other parents is, you know, these repeating themes 
I think they set up our kids to have certain expectations, you know, around uh, gender roles. Um, men, you know, of course, still are pretty much supposed to find their power through anger, not through love or compassion or it's, you know, get the gun and go kill the bad guys. And then there's the big message, which is, I think, extremely destructive and very concerning, and that is the all bad and all good dichotomy. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, these guys are great, those guys are completely terrible, therefore we can kill them without any concern about their family that's going to miss them. We don't have to question whether it's okay to kill them because they're all bad. Then there's all the other stories that don't feel like that in books and um, your teachings and lots of other places, and they're more diverse. I don't quite understand exactly why we have certain stories that seem to be expanding and beneficial and other stories that seem to be controlling and constrictive. And I just would love to know what you sort of think about that. I think that um, stories should, in my opinion, explain how the world came to be, explain how the world works, and explain how you live in that world. And even those modern stories you just mentioned, they do that. They explain the world, the way it's been created is competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is uh, 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 challenging in terms of, uh, of social structure and hierarchies. And, and so the stories that this culture is going to create tend to follow that pattern, if that's, how they, if that's how this culture sees the world. There's a wonderful book I read called Killing Monsters, and the author's name escapes me right now. But it's the myth that we tell our children today through the mediums you mentioned, books and films and television. Mm-hmm. And Killing Monsters, um, there are various uh, uh, elements of it, but it said that in one of them is your solution to a problem is to kill the monster. Um, that the monster needs to be killed. And in many native stories, traditional stories from around the world, you don't have to kill the monster. You can befriend it. You can put it to sleep. You can move it somewhere else. You can confuse it. You can do all kinds of things. You don't have to destroy it. You can trick it. Yeah, you can trick it. Right. And and the uh, modern solution is to kill the monster. And and another book said the reason that came to be is that, uh, in this author's opinion, looking at mythology, modern mythology, stories created now that we're telling ourselves, Uh, She said that uh, Frankenstein is the first modern novel of the modern age. She said because the monster in the story didn't come from the mountains, it didn't come from the ocean, Mm. it came from a laboratory, it came from human creation. Right. And the monster was created by humans through science. And the only solution that, that they had in the book was to destroy the monster. And she said that set out the tone of the modern world, destroy the monster. So, again, we can probably do much more um, detailed analysis of, of and research. Is that really the case? And I don't know, but it it is an interesting pattern that she established through the creation of that story, Frankenstein, which through old movies and books, we know that story. Right. But we created the monster, and now we our solution is to destroy it. Uh, and, and, again, the other book went to the same realm of idea of teaching children that this is a solution. And now their video games do the same thing. That's, right. It's don't find collaboration, cooperation. Don't find some kind of truce or peace. Destroy the monster. Right. Oh, yeah. So um, it, we live in that world. Is that the world we live in? And that's something we have to examine and look at the stories we tell ourselves and tell our children. Well, that's sort of, so what I took away from that that you just said is the idea that the way the society is at this moment generates the style or the type of story that we're going to get because the story is going to say 
ah, this is the way things are, like mm-hmm, you were saying. Mm-hmm. So idle no more mm-hmm. sounds to me like um, – so for people who, who don't know, um, let's see. It was about three years ago that mm-hmm. there was a movement called Occupy, uh, which is an interesting name, and there's some back history that we don't need to go that direction right now, but it was in Wall Street, happened in Seattle, different places. And it played itself out a little bit, and as it started to fade, partly the winter and other conditions were shifting, there came about over the next year or so another movement called Idle No More. And my understanding from just from the reading I've done, the paying attention, some of the events I've attended, is that it sounds to me like Native Americans have had a very valid story that they have been telling themselves over the past 100, 200, 500 years, depending on where you are on the continent, um, about what was done, what occurred, the powerlessness that resulted from the European conquest, and that there was a certain story coming out of that depression in a way. And that Idle No More seems to be saying, you know what? We are going to tell ourselves new and different stories about the power of the few. It's, it, it seems to me, it's not just, you know, the earth is literally being destroyed and we have to stand up and, and save this physical object. It's more like the story is shifting. They're demanding a new story. I, I, you remind me of a, an image I just saw. It was on, on the internet. It was, I guess it was Facebook and it was an image of the earth and the oftentimes from outer space, this is what the earth looks like from outer space. And I remember when the astronauts were going to the moon, they, they always, you know, were in awe of how the earth looked from, from outside of the earth and that it, it reminded them of that we're all connected. We're all one. Um, but then I, I saw this video again. It was another f- f- uh, shot of the Earth from some great distance, and the video began to show people um, from different cultures around the world um, uh, uh, doing activities within their culture. Diversity of the world, essentially, mm-hmm. of, of people in the world. Right. And maybe at one point that would have just flown right by me. But at this point in my life, when the Idle No More kind of uh, ideology is that why is it human-centric? Why is it saying that humans are the ones that define the earth? Why is it saying that humans are the ones that we need to be concerned with when we have all this other life around us? Um, and so it was uh, a native view of the world is that humans are not this uh, pinnacle being that that's right. been created to rule over the earth, but it's only part of the web of life in the earth, is what Chief Seattle called it, the web of life that we're in. And that that to me is, is another aspect of the I don't know more concept is that native people have been taught these things. We've kept these things alive in the face of many, many obstacles and struggles um, and that they are the truth of what native people say is nature. Nature operates in these principles. We still try to maintain those deep connections with nature because that is the truth of the light of life on the earth. Again, without you know, wagging my finger and saying people should listen to me. It's just to, <laughs> to really hopefully say in the stories that our people tell that kept us alive for countless millennium that still exist to this day, maybe we can find some wisdom 
some wisdom that will help us understand that maybe the path we're on is the wrong path uh, as a modern uh, modern culture, American Western culture. So uh, for me then, that idea of the human-centric aspect of how we interpret the world and how we live in the world has led to where we are right now, which is that everything else is less than us, including the earth itself. And so again, a lot of this stuff to me is revealed through the telling of stories. Um, you reminded me of uh, when you said something about children understanding the world through stories. I share one fairly long story from the Snoqualmie people that I was taught as their creation story. And in the story, there are, uh, at the end, is a great flood that wipes out the world that existed before. And that in this great flood, there are different animals living on a raft. And they dive down under the water, one by one, trying to recover uh, Earth to create a new world. And the first animal to dive off of this raft in the, into the great flood water is uh, um, River Otter. And River Otter, as he goes down to get the earth, is too busy playing. River Otter loves to play. He, he was blowing bubbles and chasing the bubbles. And he came back and he said he was gone for a day. And he comes back and he said, I didn't even see any land. The story says, but he was so busy playing, how could he see anything? <laughs> then the next one to offer to go down and get that earth to create a new world is uh, Muskrat. And Muskrat is vain, kind of self-centered, stuck up, uh, thinks a lot about himself, loves to flirt with girls. Well, he goes down next. And as he's going down on the second day, he goes down for two days. On the second day, he meets fish, the shiny underwater people we call fish. And he starts to flirt with the girl fish. And he comes back at the end of the second day and says, I could see the land. I was almost there, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't get down there. But I did get two marriage proposals, two fish girls want to marry me. And then comes up Little Beaver. And Little Beaver said, I guess I'll try. And Otter and Muskrat laugh at him. They make fun of him. They say, no way, you're, you're short, you're fat, you're ugly. There's no way you can do it. And he says, but I must try. And he goes and he dives down and he's gone for four days. And they believe he's drowned. But on the fourth day, they look out, they see his little nose sticking out of the water. They paddle over, they drag him up onto the raft. And under his claws, they found bits of mud and clay. He had made it all the way to, bo to the bottom and returned. They take the bits of mud and clay. They roll, roll it into a ball of mud. They jump over it four times on the raft. That little ball of mud begins to grow. It grows and it grows and it covers the raft. It covers the water. It becomes the hills and valleys and mountains. The Snoqualmie people, the Stokelbuch people is how they pronounce their name. The Stokelbuch people call their home today. So the Snoqualmie people say the world we live upon was created by the work of that little beaver. And if you look at that story, I guess I call it going Joseph Campbell on a story, kind of like, well, what are the mythic <laughs> undertones? What's the what's the metaphorical substructure of this story? You know, you look at the idea of each animal was diving to create a new world, which, depending on how you're using this story, could also be referring to creating a new life. Mm -hmm. So how do you create a new life? Well, beaver was the last, muskrat was the, the, the middle, and river otter was first. And when I ask an audience, little children all the way to elders, why didn't the first one, River Otter, get down? They said he was playing like a child. He was behaving mm -hmm. like a child. So the discussion becomes, if you behave like a child who would rather play than do anything else, will you get down to the bottom and do the hard work to create a new world, a new life? And people say no. Even little kids say no. Mm -hmm. Then Muskrat was not a child, but he didn't make it either. And kids point, well, he was flirting. And one little kid even said, oh, he was a playa, you know, flirting <laughs> with the other, with the, with the girl fish. But he was behaving like a young adult. And a young adult's job description is to figure out who they are. 
So they think about themselves all the time. Who, who, who am I? Who am I? What am I going to do in my life? Who do I like? Where am I going to go to school? All those kind of things. And that's why they annoy us old people so much. They're, they're always <laughs> thinking about themselves, but that's their job description. But if you behave like a person who thinks about themselves all the time, will you be able to create that new, new world, that new life? And people say no. So why was Beaver short, fat, and ugly? Why was he able to get it done? Because he had behaved like an adult. He focused. He worked very hard four days under the water. He did not let his friends distract him by making fun of him. He focused. He got the job done. Mm. So the story, in my opinion, again, when I when I explain what I think a story means, that's only for me. Mm-hmm. And I've told this story probably three or four hundred times. So it probably resonates differently for me than for someone who's hearing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. But. That doesn't mean my interpretation of the story is the only interpretation or the right interpretation. It only means this is what I found in this story based on my age, my gender, my experience, my race, my everything comes into play as I interpret that story. So here's this is what I found. So this story says, little one, young one, adult, you transfer, you transform in your life, you transform in your life. Mm-hmm. And that's very important information for a child to know. At one level, they know it. They sense it. They can see it. But they don't understand that process. What does that mean? This story, in a mythical way, gives them a picture of that process mm-hmm. that they can begin to place themselves in. And I believe it's a very important story at that level. But then there's another story I refer to right away. In comparison, that's a European story that everyone knows, pretty much everyone in the world knows this story. It's a powerful story for that reason. And it says the exact same thing. Little one, young one, adult. It says, when you're a little pig and you don't know very much, you make a house out of straw and grass. Is that the best house to make? And everyone says no, because the wolf, which represents the problem, can tear it apart. You get a little bit older, a little bit smarter, you make a house out of sticks. Better than grass. Is it still the best house to make? Again, people say no, because the wolf can still tear it apart. But you get to be an old pig and a wise pig and a smart pig. You make a house out of bricks. And in the European culture, this is the strongest house to make. No wolf, no problem can tear it apart. And there is it again, little one, young one, adult. Mm. And if you go one more step in the mythical interpretation that this story might hold, the house represents your life. So how can I make my life so strong that no problem can tear it apart? So both stories are trying to help you understand the process of transformation in your life. Little one, young one, adult. And so that story, again, is necessary. A child can't sit there and explain, oh, I think this story is about a little one who plays, a young one who thinks of themselves, an adult who gets a job. They don't think that way. They sense, they intuit, they feel This story has just taught me something. Right. And they carry that with them, not the literal Joseph Campbell interpretation of a story that's very, very deep and very important to understand. But just that sense of the story just taught me something that I am transforming in my life. I need to know that. And I work a lot with Native people who are in treatment centers um, sharing stories with them. And I share that story specifically. Now, what is it? So you do – you – Specifically, you did a drug and alcohol prevention project for Native American children, and then currently you, currently, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so right now you are working in Native American treatment centers with 
the adults who actually mm-hmm. are recovering from having had yeah, struggling that problem. with their addiction. Yeah, right. And so it was actually I was thinking these stories totally have relevance to that work, don't well, they? Well, it, it is interesting because again, they're struggling to create a new life. They're struggling to create a new world. So what might this story help them understand? Not at the linear logical level, which oftentimes Western therapies go to. Right. You know, it's, it's called mental health in Western culture. Um, versus holistic health and in, in, in native culture, looking at your, the, the totality of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so I tell this story because I said, as you struggle with your drug and alcohol addiction and you're trying to create a new life, are you approaching it like a child and playing? It's a game to you and it's fun. Um, and, and there's some element of, of just having a, a, a game attitude towards this transformation of your life. Or you're getting attention mm-hmm. or, you know, you get, yeah, exactly. Or right. are you just thinking about yourself? Uh, in transformation, if you transform for yourself, it's certainly possible to happen. But if you're transforming for other people, your mm-hmm. children, your family, your partner, your whatever it is, you might fight a little harder. Right. So, or are you approaching it like an adult? And the discussion then becomes, what does it mean to be an adult? And mm-hmm. in a country, in a culture that doesn't really have any ceremonial way of saying you are now an adult, a lot of us still wonder, even at my age, am I really an adult? Well, and, no and one's and ever really, told me that. I mean, I mean, this... Our culture is so very, very, very similar to the Hunger Games. <laughs> you know, we are the capital all over the place in that, I mean, my child loves Laura Ingalls, absolutely mm-hmm. adores, and, and he always says, I wish I could go live at that time. Those books, it was very clear who the adults were and who the children were, and the mm-hmm. adults were mm-hmm. the ones you could depend upon. They would make necessary sacrifices they did what needed to get done. They played the fiddle. They had fun. They they made pies. There mm-hmm. were festivals. But those, you know, they were solid members of your society. Mm-hmm. And then now we've got, I mean, who's the guy who's the, um, I mean, goodness gracious, there's all these people out there who are running around be it through social media and regular media and whatnot, whether it's the guy who started Playboy and he's on his 18th wife who's 23 mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. old or whatever there's there's a lot of confusion i think about what it means to be mature there's such a focus on you know wow if i could just basically stay in young adulthood forever and be able to party all the time that is oftentimes presented as an ideal compared to what Lori ingles grew up with yeah you look at a Perhaps. culture that denies old age in fact that's another stage of your life there's little one young one adult and then elder Mm-hmm. And uh, in most cultures around the world, recognize those transformations, and they help you through those transformations through ceremonies and through stories. Um, and so, this culture tends to deny the I- idea that I'm going to get old, that I'm going to become gray, that I'm going to become weaker, that I'm going to become unemployable, that I'm going to become all these things that this culture creates with old age. And so, we mm-hmm. fight as much as possible. And so we have this generation of uh, elders who we don't turn to for knowledge and wisdom. Uh, We avoid them as much as possible, it seems. They have nothing to offer us. And so, again, we live in a culture that seems to have removed itself from most of human history, the way human um, beings lived in the world. Right. Uh, Well, it's not just the elders. So right now my kids are 13 and 16, and um, I have a project that I've created through my farm, Esperanza Farm, which means hope in Spanish. And um, it's called Teens in the Fields. And it's because I, you know, in this 
strange, weird, short, limited time of human history where unhealthy people sitting in chairs staring at a screen for hours on end make the most money and seem to have the most power and the most value. Um, It's so strange given that it was the youth you know, who were supremely valued and the elders. I've, I've done lots of, um, I guess you'd call it cultural anthropology, but I've been studying different ways of living around the world. And the um, in Peru, the mom and dad of childbearing age, they're the ones physically strong enough to go out and work in the, in the fields and whatnot. And it's the grandparents who stay home and take care of the babies, and they will bring the babies out to be nursed like every four hours or something during the day. But I've always been um, surprised at how we treat our youth as if they are still little tiny children. And then we're surprised when they act like they are still children and they act frustrated that we're not honoring and respecting their near adulthood, you know, in another culture, you'd be married with two kids and you'd be work, you know, have, have a lot of standing in your society at the age of 17 or 18. Um, and then once again, you know, the elders, so many of them feel like, what am I supposed to do? Go play golf all the time. I mean, they don't feel like they have a valuable place. Mm -hmm, And to mm -hmm. me, when you've taken your elders and your youth and you've said, until you get a college degree or two of them, you don't have any value, don't don't really bother me, go off and become valuable, and, oh, you're old, well, go retire somewhere, but don't bug me. That's a recipe for societal problems, big time. Yeah, I, I, when I work with uh, high school students, I'll, I'll remind them that there is no such thing as teenager. Right. That that's a modern construction of a modern society that for some reason said we need a, a stage of life between child and adult. When in most cultures and most of human history, you were either a child or an adult. There was no teenage where you were neither a child nor neither an adult. It's kind of, mm-hmm. I don't blame what we call teenagers for being upset and pissed off is because <laughs> right. they, they, they don't quite know what they're supposed to be doing. How that came about, I'm sure there are people who have studied that, why this thing called teenage has come up in the modern world. I think it was the Depression. They were trying – this is – we, I learned this a lot when I was um, studying how the public schools came about and whatnot. Um, but in particular, if you think during the Depression, you didn't have enough jobs. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to pull the youth out of the job market and to create more jobs for the men in their you know 20s. And so they went ahead. And they also wanted to protect children from child um, labor. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. around the same time, they came up with this idea of, well, if you, we pull you out and you can't work at 15, 16, 17, 14, 13, then more jobs for these people out here who are adults and, and you. So there was an attempt to alter the competitiveness of the job market in a way. That was sure one that, strong element of it. I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, regardless, the, the culture has, has created a, a place where young people don't know when they become an adult. Right. And though so, so much of what we do – are the outcome of, of young people. I, I uh, just completed a graduate program, and my thesis was uh, uh, titled The Prevention of Sexual Abuse in Native Communities. Um, and I called together a focus group to talk about it because sexual abuse and alcoholism and all kinds of addictions, um, all kinds of things are symptoms of something greater. Mm-hmm. And so can we talk about what is that greater thing? Uh, and so we did have many interesting discussions in this focus group, 
But one thing that kept resonating over and over, people said in different ways, we need a ceremony to let our young people know when they're adults. We need to let them know they need to behave as an adult. We need to do something that lets young women know what it means to be an adult woman. We need to have a ceremony that lets young men know what it means to be a young man and how they need to be in balance with each other and that men are not in charge. And uh, and so those kind of things I think we need to look back on. I'm not an expert on any of these things. I, I started out, as I said, as going into art school. And then right. I had an opportunity to work in a social service program for a summer, and I liked the work, and I decided to go into social service. I figured I could be an artistic social worker. And then when I got out of college with my degree in social services, I um, um, my first job was working in education, in an education program, helping uh, support Native students as they, as they went through and struggled in the public school systems. Um, so I, I was an educator and a social worker and an artist. And for me, those three things wove together. And the final um, weaving that kind of pulled everything together to really help me understand what I hoped to do was storytelling. That storytelling wove all these things together in my life as an artist, as a social worker, and as an educator. Mm. Uh, they're all related in one way or another, and they're also um, can be pulled together to be a kind of a, a, a coherent, cohesive uh, way of of seeing your work and your meaning in the world. But like I said, storytelling as the last uh, element of all that uh, was a blessing to me um, because it helped me look at them in, in different lights and realize that all I'm doing is trying to tell stories and help people tell their own stories. Uh, as a storyteller, that's what I want to do. My teachers made it clear that this was something they saw me mm. fulfilling as an obligation and that I need to help other people do this as well. And so I do storytelling workshops. I support uh, people who want to become storytellers. I mean, it's like I tell people, that's kind of like teaching people how to breathe. Um, <laughs> I can teach you different ways to breathe that maybe one's maybe good for a runner and one might be good for trying to sleep at night, but it's all breathing. Mm. And it's the same thing with storytelling. Uh, we know how to tell stories. Every human being is a storyteller. I do differentiate between storytelling and telling a story. Right. We all tell stories. We are humans. We all tell stories. What did I well, do on the drive stories. here today? We tell stories to ourselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the stories we tell ourselves, those are largely underpaid attention to. Although if you're, you know, on social media at all, a lot of times these little things will come through. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, you know, don't be your own toughest critic, you know, or think about what you're saying to yourself. But Matt, I mean, when you work with the people who are dealing with addiction issues mm -hmm. or, or, and I was going to ask you to share your story um, about uh, what you decided when you were five, oh. you know, the stories that children tell themselves, um, wow, you know, I mean, one single story that gets lodged in your head can have a lasting impact on every minute of the rest of your life. And if you're aware of it and it's good for you, great. If you're unaware and it's bad for you, we need to find a way to increase that awareness of the power of those mm -hmm. internal stories. But could you take a minute to explain a little bit about your decision when you were five and how it relates oh, yeah, to your yeah. work with um, alcoholism and sure. um, drug addiction? I, I've done a lot of work with drug and alcohol addiction and prevention of drug and alcohol addiction. And one thing I share right away with people is that I've never had a drink or done drugs my whole life. 
which seems to make me an anomaly in American culture and a lot of cultures around the world now. Um, but the message I try to convey to young people, little kids all the way to teenagers, is, is drugs and alcohol or cho- are, are a choice that you make. You don't have to do it. Even if your parents use, even if your whole community uses, and all you see on television and books are people using and, and abusing, you don't have to do that. And for some groups, um, and as a Native person, I know that just being a Native uh, American is not a risk factor, but there seems to be this perception, popular perception, I'll call it, that Native people uh, drink and uh, they don't know how to handle drinking. And there are a lot of uh, sociocultural reasons that might be the case, but that regardless of all of that, it is a choice that you make. Some people believe there is no choice. You have to make uh, you have to do that to fit into your community, to fit into your family sometimes. Hmm. Um, but the, the, if they can understand that it's a choice you make and you can live a life without drugs and alcohol, that's fine. They can factor that in. If they never got that message, then it, it can be um, uh, damaging to them. Uh, when we were doing work with children on prevention, uh, there was a report that came out that said the average child, by the time they reach, and this is back 20 years ago or so, by right. the time they reach the age of 21, they've seen about 800,000 beer commercials. If they're just average on watching the amount of television children watch. And so, and I don't know how predominant beer commercials are now. Yeah, do they uh, still the Super have, Bowl would tell us they're still happening. I don't watch uh, TV. Yeah. Well, so, uh, regard, uh, so again, 800,000 beer commercials. And every wow. beer commercial tells them how fun, how uh-huh. sexy, how cool drinking is. Oh, and Pringles. Yeah. Pringles. You eat those little Pringles, you're going to be long-limbed and skinny <laughs> and pretty, and all your friends are jumping around popping Pringles with you. Yeah. yeah. That's a selling technique, but alcohol uses it uh, very, very well. That, mm-hmm. that Your social status, your everything about you will improve, and you'll be cool. Uh, which is being cool is a whole nother discussion. Um, <laughs> what makes things cool? Um, when I go to the work in the treatment centers, the first story I'll tell is a joke. Um, and I won't tell the joke now because <laughs> it would give away my everything. And I, a, a joke can only work once. But in the joke, uh, a man is trapped, not like literally in a cage, but trapped by a situation. And uh, the trap is uh, what surprises people. And that's the joke part of it. It makes them laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I go into the idea, well, Traps. What is a trap? Uh, and trap to me is, is when you get stuck in a situation and you cannot transform. You keep doing the same thing over and over, even if self-destructive, and you can't stop, and you right. don't know how to stop. That can be a trap. And then I realized as I began to define it that way that I know a lot of stories that are full of traps where you get stuck and you cannot transform. And uh, many cultures, many philosophies say that the, the, the nature of life is to transform, to change. Mm-hmm. So if you're stuck and you can't transform, that you're, you're struggling, then that's where the addiction becomes the focal point of your life, uh, or can be. Um, and so the idea of uh, traps is really interesting to me because there are some very powerful stories that say, look what happened in this story. Did the person respect the trap? Well, do you mind... Do you, is it easy for you to share let me, one? Let me tell you one little quick story. Because I think uh, traps yeah. is a, is a it, like it, you said, everyone because, again, has to deal with that. Some of the stories look at how you get in the trap. Other stories look at how you get out of the trap, which is very interesting. Right. Um, but let me tell you this story. It's a, a coyote story. And I tell it again at the treatment centers as well. 
Coyote's a trickster, which means he's very, very smart, uh, tends to be amoral, does whatever he wants based on what he wants at the time, doesn't care if something burns down or explodes or whatever. Coyote does it. And he's also very powerful because as soon as you try to define Coyote, he's become something else and you're wrong. So you describe his new condition, he moves on to something else, you're wrong again. So he's very hard to pin down, very smart. Uh, very tricky, oftentimes does what we call bad things in the stories. So I asked people, is there a trap in this story? A long time ago, Coyote was sitting out in the woods in a patch of sunshine, and he was scratching himself, and his friend Badger appears. Badger, that little animal, kind of like a little bear, walks up to Coyote and says, Coyote, why are you so smart? And Coyote said, what are you talking about? And Badger said, well, all the animals, we were talking, we agreed you're the smartest of all the animals, and we want to know why. Why are you so smart? Coyote thinks for a minute. He says, well, because I ate smart berries. Badger said, smart berries? What are smart berries? Coyote says, those are the berries you eat that make you smarter. Duh. Well, Badger starts to beg. Well, well, give me some, too. I want to be smart like you. Where can I get the smart berries? Please, please, please. And Coyote says, nah, nah, nah. They're too powerful. You can't handle them. But Badger keeps begging and pleading. Please, Coyote, please. I want to be smart like you. Please, please, please. Tell me where they are. I can do it. Well, Coyote lets Badger beg for a while. Then he says, all right, come with me. And he leads them up into the hills. They follow the trails way up into the woods, up into the hills. And right by the trail, in the middle of the woods, is this big bush. And all around the bottom of the bush are these little brown pellets laying on the ground. Coyote points at those little brown pellets and says, oh, they're smart berries. Badger jumps down and starts stuffing those little pellets in his mouth, eating as many as he can, and then he stops and he starts to spit them out. Coyote, these aren't berries. These are rabbit droppings. This is rabbit poop. What are you doing? And Coyote said, don't you feel smarter already? And that is all. The story called Coyote and the Smart Berries. And again, we begin the discussion, oh, did coyote. coyote did Coyote <laughs> lay a trap for Badger? Yes, he did. People say, yes, he did. Why didn't Badger see the trap? And that becomes a huge discussion, why he didn't see the trap. Why didn't you see the trap of alcohol, of certain kinds of drugs, of cigarettes, of gambling, of whatever became your addiction? Why didn't you see the trap? Or did you see the trap? Because that's a whole other discussion. Sometimes we mm -hmm. see the trap, but our self-talk, our, our own story says, but the trap won't get me. Mm -hmm. So um, oftentimes people talk about because I wanted something really bad. Mm -hmm. And Badger, what did Badger want? I want to be like Coyote. I want to be smart. I want to be looked up to. I want to be cool. That social status thing that's very important in selling uh, products, uh, it, it's worked forever. you know. Mm -hmm. And so Badger wanted something really, really bad. In his heart, he wanted something really bad. His mind told him, Coyote's going to do something bad, don't do it, but he didn't care. His heart said, I want to be, and it's one of the funnier responses kids give me. Consistently, they give me this one. Mm -hmm. You can't get smart just by eating a few berries. <laughs> you have to work, you have to study, you have to learn, you have to go to the... So they recognize that little part of the story. Right. But Badger got trapped by Coyote. Just like you can't be popular, cool, and have lots of, you know, girlfriends or whatever just by buying a case of Coors beer and taking your shirt off and sitting there and drinking it <laughs> in front of people. And right? again, the story, the message way it's conveyed is that you know, this could happen. This could be you. That's how casinos work, too. Um, mm, but for me, then, oh. the that little story about the trap is a beginning of a discussion of did you have respect for the trap. Did you recognize the trap? Did you Stock see market. the trap? That's yeah. another trap sitting yeah. there. It's like, hey, guess what? We are telling you up front, 
a bunch of people are going to lose uh-huh. and uh-huh. some people are going to win. And it's like people, what, there's this thing where um, uh, they'll downplay the risk if they really want something and increase the potential in their mind of winning. And they'll go to false beliefs on both of those directions and then they'll dive in. Yeah. There, there are so many traps in the world. We can get trapped in relationships and economic conditions. I'm, um, uh, you know, you can look at uh, 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 drugs and alcohol, cigarettes, gambling. There's just all kinds of traps. And then, computer games. Yeah, computer games. Uh, World of Warcraft. Yeah. Personal experience with uh, someone being up for at night every night playing World of Warcraft. Can't stop. Um, mm. So there are the world is full of traps. Can we see them? Can we avoid them? But what happens when we get trapped? And that's the discussion I have in the treatment centers. Again, the stories do not give you the answer. I remind them all the time. The story is not the answer. The story is the way to help you find your answer. It's illumination. Yeah. When, When you were in the old days in human villages all around the world, before the modern world we live in now, um, you would go to the elders in your village with a problem. And you would say, I got a problem with my partner, my, my children. I got a problem with my work. Whatever it is, you'd say, you explain your problem to them. Right. And you were done explaining the problem to them. And they would usually say, let me tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And then they would tell you a story that had nothing to do with your problem. <laughs> because you would ask about your problem with you and your neighbor. And they'd tell you about a chipmunk and a grizzly bear. Right. So how does that work? Well, I was taught and I believe that the elders knew you had the answer inside you already. Mm-hmm. You knew the answer to your own problem. What you needed was a, he- a way to help you find that answer. And that is what the story was, a way to help you find your answer. I remind people the story is not the answer. The story is the way to help you find your answer. Right. And that empowers you to understand that I have this control. I have this ability to solve my own problems. And that is a powerful concept, especially when pe- dealing with people in treatment and drug and alcohol addiction. Or, or people who are just growing up and trying to figure out this world. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of complexity going on. And I think right there, I often ask my authors and my writers and whatnot, um, what message would they give to the youth in particular of the world in order to encourage them to remain hopeful and positive and willing to engage and, and get involved? Because uh, I've personally met a lot of people coming out of college in the last five years or so who feel like what they've learned has given them the sense that there's nothing that can be done, that the problems are so large and global. It's like, and they'll say, I'm not even going to try. I'll just be depressed and I'll just fail. Mm -hmm. And that's really not what we need this generation to be doing. And um, I think you just gave right there, you know, the, the reason is that if you can have that internal story that's telling you, yes, you can find the answer. That's probably one of the best stories to have for the rest of your life, in a way. I, I tell monster stories a lot. Kids love monster stories. People, people kind of, adults kind of roll their eyes. You know, if that's a monster story, it's not going to scare me. It's for kids. But the way I utilize the story, if I, people were in, coming to me as an elder and saying, I got a problem and I was going to tell them a story, I would tell them a monster story, hmm. which I do. And the monster then becomes this um, terrible, terrible condition, this terrible being that if you don't do something about it, will destroy you. And it might be in a terrifying, terrible way. And so you have to do something about it. Mm. And in all the monster stories, the people overcome the monster. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a very powerful message that no matter how terrible this thing is, we can overcome it. This is what we human beings do. We overcome terrible conditions, terrible things. We overcome monsters. 
And so when we look at young people today, you know, again, scientifically, we could explain all the conditions of global climate change. We could explain all the things around so many of the environmental issues we're confronted with today, the economies, the wars, all these terrible things that are happening. We can explain them to their brain, to their mind, but they need reassurance first that you can overcome whatever we describe. In their heart. Yeah, in our heart, we know that we can overcome this thing. That gives us the will to act, to work, to seek each other out, to work together. That gives us the will to make those steps we need to make that change, to confront that monster. So for me, I tell monster stories. What did the what did the little girl do in this story to overcome the monster? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. the monster stories say you can't run from the monster. It will chase you. You can't hide from the monster. It will, it will find, find you. you, right? You must stand up and do something about it. And a lot of people, they try to run from the monster, and they try to hide from the monster. So, again, very simple stories perceived to be just for children. They're guides for all of us to find the answers we carry within us. And, again, I think that's really empowering to tell people, you have the answer inside you already. I remember the the movie Wizard of Oz, which, like most people, I've seen multiple, multiple times. Um, And if you remember at the end of the story, uh, when Dorothy is... uh, uh, left behind by the wizard as he flies off uh, accidentally in his balloon without her, mm-hmm. another good witch, a witch, a good witch appears, Glinda, and says to her, you know those shoes you've been wearing the whole movie? All you had to do was tap them together and say some magic words. You could have gone home. And Dorothy says, why didn't you tell me before? And Glinda gives a really important answer. She mm-hmm. said, because you would not have believed me. You had to go through the journey to understand that you had that power. And so storytelling is part of that journey to understand we have that power to change something we don't think we can change, to do something we don't think we can do. Um, But again, story doesn't speak to our mind or cognitive brain. It speaks to our heart. And that's something else that's very important to understand, that the stories, because they don't make sense to our brain, they can't be true. And if they're not true, they have no meaning. If they have no meaning, then they have no purpose. They mean nothing to us now. And so I think that modern psychology seems to be, in some of the stuff I've been reading, catching up with that old wisdom that all people had, that our heart is as important, if not more important, than our brain in understanding, in figuring out how to live in the world, in solving problems. Which is exactly why I focus so often in the show on on fiction and story rather than just nonfiction books, because... when you read a book and it tells you about all the stuff like, you know, that's going on in the world and it goes in through your head, a lot of times it'll go in through your head and now you have it and you put the book down and you walk on, your life stays the same. Um, But I have personally experienced many times where you get into the shoes of a character, you're going through their journey and you cry with them and you ache with them and you laugh with them and at the end you put that book down but they are embedded inside of you and you have been changed. That emotional piece or that heart piece gives you the will. You can know what you need to do, but that doesn't supply the will the same way the emotions do. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you, Roger, for talking with me about your CD, Teachings of the First People, and all the many ways you've incorporated stories and teachings into your life's work. You can learn more about Roger Fernandez and this collection of stories and teachings at www.10wolves.com. You can also look up Roger on Facebook and another great place to go is www.wisdomoftheelders.org and check out the Discovering Our Stories section at that website. Thank you so much for coming to chat with me. You're welcome, and thanks for the invitation. Yay!
That was such a great interview. Thank you so much for your time. And now we're going to end this show with another story that's been turned into a song by Allison Shirk. It's titled Monster, One More Example of Activism Through Art. Monster.